welcome to Rising. We've got another fantastic show for you today. Will Jawando and Malik Abdul are in for panel and will weigh in on Biden's latest polling numbers, which are not great. And Kim Iverson, of course, will join us later on. But first, the Brooklyn subway shooting suspect, Frank James, was caught and taken into custody yesterday in Manhattan. Mayor Adams celebrated the arrest of James during a remote press conference saying, quote, my fellow New Yorkers, we got him. Adams is currently in quarantine after testing positive for COVID. But it wasn't the NYPD who caught him. It was a 21-year-old man from Syria working as a security guard for a shop near Manhattan's East Village who spotted James on the cameras on his way to work. Here's how the man, Zach Tahan, described the scene. What happened is I was working inside that store. I do security cameras. And I was watching the street, like how I see how the camera looked, like we was doing the adjustment. And I see this guy, he did the problem. And I was two, two days, I don't sleep when I see the people die like this from this guy and nobody catch him. Look how many people have in New York, nobody catch him. Like I was working inside the store and I catch him. It's nice to see, like, just, just a guy having, like, the best day of his life <laughs> after a, a genuinely well-deserved heroic moment. Um, I love New York. <laughs> I miss New York. The idea of, like, basically your favorite, you know, bodega scenario mm-hmm. <laughs> and being the one that actually catches it. And look, to a lot of our reporting yesterday in our, in our interview with uh, Oleami, at the end of the day, it is kind of a damning reality that despite having an almost $11 billion police budget, <laughs> officers on every corner standing around posted up <laughs> at every subway station, it was this guy yeah. and his eagle eye that just happened to catch the guy. Yeah, it's hard to... I mean, yeah, what else can you say? Big points for community defending, community a of, policing. A lot of police out there Not uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't catch him, but uh, this guy did, so I don't know what else to say. It's a good thing that... Uh, Good thing that he's caught. Uh, Eric Adams had like a, a kind of we got him yes. sort of. It's, not that this wasn't this is a bad guy who did a very, very bad thing. But it's not, it's not Osama bin Laden. I don't know. There was a kind of, do you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, he is the kind of guy who is going to try to capitalize on a moment like this. And maybe that's not fair. Maybe every mayor would try to use this as an opportunity to right, see the Right, but he's got a tough guy. I'm the sheriff. Right. You know, right. And it's especially. Sort of swagger inappropriate in a lot of people's view because who is the we? I saw a lot of people responding to that tweet saying, who is the we exactly? And we caught him because you literally didn't do it. And, you know, there was reporting that, you know, the, the, the suspect had been called in and identified. But before the police could even get to the scene, uh, the mm-hmm. civilian was able to identify him first, which also really begs the question, why is the responsiveness rate so slow? Why did it even come to this in the first instance? And there's some people who are even saying that uh, the reluctance to really uh, honor Zach uh, mm-hmm. is all about trying to keep him from getting the, I think it's a $50,000 <laughs> reward. I hope oh, that's not the case because oh. <laughs> he certainly deserves it. Uh, and did he have uh, prior arrests? I thought I, I saw that maybe he did. The uh, the, the suspect. The suspect. Yeah. Um, I believe I I saw that he had been investigated uh, by the FBI, looked at by the FBI, so he, and then he, cleared. Right. right. So it's another. <sighs> That's so frustrating. Slipping through the cracks moment of these institutions. Yeah. Or like not even slipping through. Like like was on top of the cracks, had not fallen <laughs> through them, and then was like shoved <laughs> right. through them by the FBI. Because uh, that was yeah. the same case, and I've mentioned this on the show numerous times because I followed the Parkland uh, school shooting. I mm. reported on a lot. And that guy, um, the, in that horrific uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, 
He was reported to the FBI. Yeah. He was reported to the school authorities. Yeah. He was reported to the sheriff's department. He was every person who was supposed to see something, say something. They saw something yeah. and they said something, and they said, "This kid is going to be a mass shooter. Can you do something about it?" And law enforcement didn't do anything. Yeah, which is pretty frustrating. And then they say, "We need more resources. We need more of a police state, and it's, et cetera." But but you don't. You miss the stuff you're supposed to catch when everybody does what they're supposed to do. When the citizens do. It's very frustrating. Very frustrating. It's very frustrating. Yeah. I won't say the word to fund because I don't want to trigger anybody, but no, way out. the yeah. funding isn't working. The fund, the fund, <laughs> yeah. Let's not fund. I don't know. We can neither defund nor fund. I guess sit here and complain about it, I guess. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to get into some other big news that happened yesterday. President Biden moved another $800 million in additional military aid to the Ukraine, including transfer of helicopter artillery systems and armored vehicles. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby told reporters why the U.S. signed over the additional aid. Let's watch. It's the first time that we've provided these uh, 155 howitzers and the uh, associated rounds that will go with them. And again, that's reflective of the kind of fighting that uh, that the Ukrainians are expecting to uh, to be faced uh, with here in this uh, little bit more confined geographic area. They specifically asked uh, for fire support and that and specifically asked for artillery support. This comes as the World Bank is preparing to deliver one point five billion dollars in aid to Ukraine. Yeah, so more uh, more support uh, for Ukraine, which, look, obviously, I, I mean, I don't know, I think maybe we disagree slightly on this, Kim, and I disagree on this. I am basically fine to continue uh, giving them weapons, if, but, but we should be putting diplomatic pressure on them, obviously, to actually settle something with Vladimir Putin. Well, this is the tension. Right. D- does providing more weapons facilitate a shorter diplomatic process? Does it make it more likely for parties to come to the bargaining table? Or does it elongate the process because Zelensky is under the impression that he can win the war or hold off Russia for a longer period of time when anyone who looks at the military abilities of these two respective countries understands that ultimately it's just a matter of time for obviously Russia, the military power that it is, the nuclear superpower that it is, will ultimately prevail. Now, to what end? How much of the country can it take the whole country without use of the kind of force that would trigger the involvement of Western allies? That's all up in the air. But I think it's a really interesting philosophical question of is the real thing that's driving this an unwilling to make the kinds of compromises that are ultimately bound to happen? Right. But ultimately, they are being invaded, mm-hmm. and I, they're, they're the ones playing defense. So it's a, it's a little different than the just kind of arming people. I know this is a proxy war in some sense, but it's one that Russia started. So I don't have, I don't like have the moral, there's less of a moral struggle. to No, yeah, they, they are wrongly being invaded, so it would be better to bring this war obviously to an end as fast as possible, but it, it, that needs to end with Russia ending the war. Like Russia is the Look, one doing the thing. There is an open debate about this. There is no debate about the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine, and that's a violation of international law. It is also true that many people point, pinpoint the beginning of this war as some place other than the invasion. And they see it primarily as a proxy war and America has been the proxy party that has been instigating the kinds of diplomatic maneuvers that, from some people's point of view, have all but provoked Russia into 
uh, you know, into a situation that they're in because their back is up against the wall. Now, obviously, reasonable minds disagree about that, but the fact of the matter is that that perspective is largely absent from mainstream media, mm -hmm. and it is now largely absent from even alternative media as the Russian state perspective that you were able to find on places like RT are now banned from much of the internet. And that's a concern because even if you disagree with the Russian perspective, I think it's important for Americans to know what they're up against and what the thought process is of those who they are hoping to deter from continued aggression through the provision of additional aid. And I think the other question that really gets left out of this is even if you believe in every way, shape or form, morally, strategically, et cetera, that Ukraine is in the right, that they need to have weapons to def defend Russia, there is this secondary kind of imperialist question of what role should America continue to play as the world's policeman. And some people might think, you know, Donald Trump certainly thought, you know, we were overly involved in Europe. We were basically funding the military ability of an entire continent while their people enjoyed all any number of social programs, and that there was a reasonable question of why we were intervening in, in Europe in these kinds of circumstances, but not intervening in other places in the rest of the world where there is equal num uh, uh, an equal level of tragedy on an ongoing basis. That's a fair point. Well, we also learned yesterday from President Zelensky that the country captured Viktor Medvedchuk, a pro-Kremlin politician who was living in the Ukraine, allegedly escaped his house arrest shortly after Russia launched its invasion. This morning, Ukraine is saying they hit a Russia warship off the Crimean coast as Russian officials said a fire caused them to evacuate the ship that was severely damaged. However, reports are conflicting as to what actually happened, as they so often are. It, it's, you know, it's hard from where we are to make sense, just like you said. And that's a downside of having this um, situation where, yeah, we're, we're we're canceling, we're deplatforming any of the pro-Russian voices. I mean, this show is one of the only places you can you can hear. Like Kim talked about it on her radar yesterday. She just said, well, here is what Putin is telling right. these people. I think that it's lies, but you should, you, we should know what they're telling them or what, mm -hmm. why, what the Russian people think. Yeah, so many people noted. Um, I interviewed uh, Abby Martin on my show, and she was pointing to the fact that, if, but for RT, she would have taken a lot longer to realize all of the kind of ghost island stuff and some of the early mm -hmm. stories coming out of the conflict were, in fact, fake. And it was, for better or worse, Russian television sources that were reporting on some of the misinformation that took forever to trickle down to the rest of the Western media sphere because there is not that openness to what the alternative perspectives are. Yeah. No, it's a huge problem. And, and we have just been speedily going down this path of saying, nope, we're, we're not going to, to, to hear any of it. And it. You know, it's one thing to, I guess, do the sanctions and not want to do direct, um, you know, although I have a lot of skepticism about the sanctions, as we talked about with our friend Judd Legum mm -hmm. yesterday. But to not even be able to consume just information, just information about what's going on over there, what they think. Um, are that we so warp, insecure? That, right, right. <laughs> it it, it can warp our perception of the war. It does warp our perception yeah. of the war. And we don't want to be, right, we don't want to be overconfident. I, I do think the Russian military has, from, you know, from looking at all sources and what they say, it looks to me like the Russian military ha has badly uh, underperformed uh, it, during the course of this invasion, and it's been really bad for them. Uh, but like you said, that doesn't mean they're going to lose. That doesn't mean they, like, there are more forces they could commit to this thing. So we don't want to, because we're not listening to what Russia says, be overconfident and then be, you know, subtly or un not so subtly 
urging Zelensky to hold on until, un, until I think Kim called it a last man standing in Ukraine kind right. of scenario. Right, that is the worst case scenario, it seems. Yeah, that would be bad. Well, we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next. Stay with us. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, it's big news in progressive world yesterday as Congressional Progressive Caucus weighed in on the Ohio 11th rematch between Senator Nina Turner and Chantel Brown. Now, Nina Turner is the co-chair of the Bernie 2020 campaign, is a supporter of Medicare for All, a $15 minimum wage, the Green New Deal, and student debt cancellation. She takes no corporate money and last summer was able to outraise her opponent with small dollar donations alone. Chantel Brown, on the other hand, was funded by Republican donors in her last race, faced an ethics probe for awarding millions of dollars to her partner's company, and just received a $1 million ad by a crypto billionaire who has supported a number of Republican senators. She has not only taken money from right-aligned individuals like Trump ally and Patriots owner Robert Kraft and former chair of the Cuyahoga Republican Party, some of her most substantial financial support during last year's special election came from Democratic Majority for, for Israel, a conservative pact that donated to Republican candidates like Lindsey Graham and through which individual conservative donors laundered donations to Brown. So you might think that the choice for the Progressive Caucus endorsement was an obvious one. But if you assumed that the Progressive Caucus would be supporting Senator Nina Turner, you'd be wrong. So what seems to be the rub this time around? Why has Pramila Jayapal's caucus made the switch from supporting fellow Bernie alum and alleged ideological ally Nina Turner to Chantel Brown, a corporate-funded candidate who seems to offer the left little other than fidelity to the establishment Democratic agenda? I'm sure more details about the decision will come out over the coming weeks, but to much of the left, this decision is but the latest in a long line of disappointments from Jayapal who some are dismissing as a progressive leader altogether. And when you assemble all the evidence, it's clear why so many progressives are considering cutting the cord with the Democratic Party altogether. Now, progressives first became skeptical of Jayapal back in January, January of last year, when some voters and media figures, including myself, were pushing for progressives in the House to withhold their vote for Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House in order to gain some, any concessions for the left. Because of the narrow margins in the House, any six or so progressives had the power to hold up Pelosi's nomination for Speaker in exchange for concessions like, say, better committee appointments, ending PAYGO, ousting Richie Neal, a Medicare for All opponent from the Ways and Means Committee, or having a hearing on Medicare for All, a crucial issue at the time when the pandemic was raging and no vaccine was yet available. When asked, Jayapal explained away her decision not to exploit one of the last remaining leverage points for the left by saying that she would not force the vote because she feared that Republican minority leader Kevin McCarthy might become Speaker of the House if she did. Of course, that wouldn't be possible unless a significant number of Democrats were to vote for Republican McCarthy, an extremely unlikely outcome. Even if progressives abstained from voting for Pelosi and McCarthy got more votes, absolutely, he would not become Speaker of the House unless he got more than half of the total votes in the House, not just a bare majority. So Jayapal is either ignorant to the point of concern about House procedure or she lied. And neither is an especially reassuring outcome. Strike two for Jayapal centered around the fight for a $15 minimum wage. Remember that a minimum wage raise was initially included as part of the 2021 COVID relief bill. 
At that time, it was reported that some progressives considered holding up the entire COVID package unless a $15 minimum wage was included in the bill. In an interview with Ryan Grimm on his podcast Intercepted, Jayapal revealed that progressives had successfully threatened to do something similar to ensure extended unemployment benefits were in the bill. And it worked. But when it came to the fight for 15, an enormously popular policy, well, Jayapal threw that fight. After the $15 minimum wage was stripped from the bill, it was reported that, quote, when a $15 minimum wage increase fell out of the package because of Senate rules, some Democrats considered withholding their votes entirely. Jayapal helped persuade those members to support the deal without the minimum wage raise. A tu brute? Since then, Jayapal has been one of Biden's biggest boosters. Instead of using her position to drive home the extent to which Biden has betrayed his fairly moderate campaign promises, she described him thusly last summer, shortly after the $15 minimum wage debacle. President Biden has risen to the moment, she said, and I really do give him an A in what he's done so far. It's been bold. It's been progressive. It's been what the country needs. Polls disagree. <clears throat> Here's more evidence. When progressive squad member Rashida Tlaib made a speech on behalf of the Working Families Party following the State of the Union address this year, Jayapal seemed almost miffed that she'd stepped out of line. Here she is speaking to Mehdi Hassan. I just want people to understand the Progressive Caucus doesn't give a, uh, a response to the president. We will all be out there talking about what we thought. And I believe that the president's going to raise some really important progressive priorities. Big, she doesn't speak for me energy here. So much for progressive unity. Moreover, whereas some progressives like AOC warned Democrats that separating Biden's traditional infrastructure bill from the human infrastructure bill, Build Back Better, was a mistake, Jayapal went through with the plan and even said later that she had, quote, no regrets about doing so. That was the moment Biden's agenda died, and Jayapal had no regrets about it. Everyone with eyes could see that Manchin was lying when he said he'd support the human infrastructure bill if only they passed the traditional bill first. It was a Lucy, Charlie Brown in the football moment as obvious as the nose on my face, but Jayapal pursued that agenda-killing strategy with impunity and apparently without regret. Now, I'm not the only one who has noticed this pattern of Jayapal playing cleanup for corporate Democrats. Just listen to Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell unironically un applaud her ability to spin political guano into gold. And then the, your show's optimist in chief, <laughs> Congresswoman Jayapal, actually presents an optimistic view of what's next. She actually does it, and it's real. I listen to it. I sit there with all my experience trying to tear it apart, and, and no, it's real, it's legitimate. Um, and I got to say, she's she's brilliant at it uh, diplomatically uh, in her presentation of it. Uh, but it's just my favorite thing to watch <laughs> to watch those words of optimism <laughs> just washing over you and you just, you know, making them, you know, let them get into your heart and go on with life that way. It is it is like a recurring bit. On this yep. show, you're completely right that I bring yep. Congresswoman Jayapal on and I say, looks to me like nothing can happen. <laughs> looks to me like it's all over. Whew, this was a dark one. And she's every single time I hear you, Rachel, but actually. And then she's mm -hmm. got something to say that is not pie in the sky and is not some made no. up thing and is not like there'll be better days ahead. She always has some constructive thing that can happen and some little based in reality thing that I'm not factoring into my little dark cloud. She, I mean, 
to be the chair of the Progressive Caucus is by design to always be asking for things that you are mostly not going to get. But she has this gift of asking for things and presenting the case for things in a way that is both reasonable and makes it seem likely that she is going to get at least a mm. lot of what it is she's asking for. Um, and that is, uh, it works even on me. I am, a, I am the original dark cloud, but it works even on me. If you were looking for a substantive analysis in that clip, I promise you won't find one. It is nothing but empty words of optimism and yes, a recurring bit. Now, it should perhaps come as no surprise, given her reported political ambitions, that Jayapal has been this disappointing. As David Sirota observed yesterday, quote, this is very likely Pramila Jayapal selling out the entire movement because of her unbridled ambitions to get a fancy but meaningless leadership title among a House Dem caucus that will be obliterated in the midterm elections. A total betrayal on every level. Democrats may offer some explanation for this betrayal, but all the excuses that I can think of fall, fl fall flat. Democrats sometimes say they're going to support the incumbent or the candidate with the obvious lead. But when Nina Turner was pulling ahead of Brown last spring, the establishment Democratic support for Brown ramped up with endorsements from stars like Hillary Clinton and Jim Clyburn. Look at how some establishment Democrats are backing Connor Lamb over John Fetterman, despite Fetterman having better odds against Republican general election opponent Dr. Oz. And remember how establishment Democrats abandoned India Walton after she won her primary race in Buffalo, fair and square? It's becoming clearer and clearer to many progressive and populist voters that the odds of changing the Democratic Party from within, returning it to its working class roots, are growing slimmer and slimmer. And many are advocating for a clean break. After all, with allies like these, who needs enemies? If Biden is unable to boost his low poll numbers and Democrats lose one or both chambers due to apathy from the base, they'll undoubtedly blame progressives. But let the record show that progressive leadership, clamoring to be included in the in crowd, did this to themselves. And for what? For what? Now, Robbie, this has been a long time coming from my perspective, and I have wanted to give Pramila Jayapal and the Progressive Caucus the benefit of the doubt. There have been plausible outs for many of these moments as they've happened down the pike. When the force of vote moment happened, they said that we're going to hold out for a $15 minimum wage. When the $15 minimum wage happened and the reporting was that Pramila Jayapal was the one that convinced them not to hold out and make sure that this enormously popular policy, a policy that won with 60% of the vote in red Trump Florida, wouldn't get included in the COVID relief bill, that was the final straw for me. And this, I think, is going to be the final straw for a lot of other progressives. I hear you, but I'm just letting the optimism wash away. <laughs> let's, let's just wait. Oh, wait. Isn't that clip ridiculous? That clip was, yeah, utterly insane. When was that from? It, uh, last uh, fall, I think. Uh, I Around the time I'm that Bill Back Better Fed failed. As it occurred. Yeah. And, yep. and, yeah, I know this was not the subject of your radar, but it shows to you the kind of priorities of like the MSNBC. Uh, uh, pundits and, and I guess their viewers like no everything like, yes. literally doing the it's fine dog meme thing no everything's fine everything's fine <laughs> the house isn't burning like, you could see the flames around uh, uh, Maddow and uh, Lawrence yeah and, and that's the thing it's clear that their role similar to what Pramila Jayapal's role seems to be serving in this moment is to provide cover for the failures of the party as a whole to make sure everybody feels as though Democrats are doing the best they can when it's obviously not the case and of course it's true that Republicans are not doing the best that they can and that we have a, a plutocracy that is betraying the interests of American voters as a whole. Um, but my 
interest, as a progressive in particular, in particular, is making sure that the people who say that they represent my interest and are using the progressive labels do so sincerely. And I, I think that this latest betrayal, not, not supporting a woman who you worked with so recently on the campaign of the leading progressive in this country and an enormously popular uh, independent senator from Vermont, it, it's going to be really difficult for people to, to look past. So um, I'm really interested to see what the continued response to this will be online and in real life. And I'm also looking forward to your radar next, Robbie. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the Walt Disney Corporation are currently at war over the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, which the governor recently signed into law. Critics of that law say it stigmatizes LGBTQ students and teachers and would even make it difficult for public school staff members to disclose if they are gay or in gay relationships. Now, conservatives, on the other hand, say detractors have totally misnamed the law, which does nothing except prevent teachers from talking to very young kids about highly political and controversial concepts that relate to orientation and gender identity. They've also claimed that the law is designed to target grooming, which is the idea that public school staff are using conversations about gender and sexual orientation as a pretext to actually sexually abuse the children. Now, that's an incredibly serious and incendiary allegation, and one I actually plan to address more fully in a future radar. In previous radars, I've explained that I do think some of the concepts taught to young kids in public schools actually fall under the category of political activism, and parents have every right to object to them. Race and equity training, often lumped under the umbrella of critical race theory, is actually the bigger offender here. But I have seen some bad instruction with respect to gender identity. I'm totally in support of the parents who don't think that's the right thing for young kids. Opponents of the bill are correct, however, that its wording is extremely vague, and undoubtedly some unreasonable parents will use the law to punish teachers who merely mention that they have a same-sex partner or acknowledge that gay and trans people exist. And thus, I understand why many Floridians are ultimately against it. Now, employees of Disney who oppose the law have successfully persuaded the company to speak out against it, albeit belatedly. And as a result of that, uh, conservative media is going after Disney, claiming the company allows children to be sexually assaulted, etc. The best criticism of Disney, though, is that is the hypocrisy charge, because for as much as the company claims to object to laws that don't acknowledge gay people, Disney absolutely excuses such laws when other countries are the ones enforcing them. Let me uh, refresh your memory. This is from my recent radar on the subject. Have you ever heard of Dominica? Dominica, you may not know, is a small island nation in the Caribbean. Dominica's government is very anti-LGBT. Not only is there no gay marriage there, but same-sex sexual activity is actually illegal. Gay marriage is also illegal in Antigua and on the Dutch island of St. Martin, where same-sex couples have to travel to the Netherlands to get married, and if the marriage won't be valid if they then return home. Yet Dominica, Antigua, and St. Martin are all locations visited by a Disney cruise line. So it strikes me as a little odd that Disney would want to denounce the government of Florida for merely approving legislation that makes it more difficult to acknowledge gay relationships in schools, but would continue to give business to an island nation that puts gay people in prison for being gay. So that's Disney. 
Here's something new. Disney is not the only major media corporation engaged in this hypocrisy. Surprise, surprise. So today I want to talk about Warner Brothers, which is owners of the Harry Potter film franchise, of which I am a huge fan. The latest film, Fantastic Beasts, The Secret of Dumbledore, comes out this week. Now, one of Dumbledore's secrets, fellow Harry Potter fans will recall, is that he and the series antagonist Grindelwald had a same-sex attraction to each other. Now, this never actually comes up in the Harry Potter book series, and in fact, Grindelwald is an extremely minor character who's really just part of Dumbledore's backstory. But one day, author J.K. Rowling declared that, in her view, Dumbledore is a gay character. It's funny to think about now, since J.K. Rowling's negative views about transgender activism have subsequently rendered her a pariah to uh, many progressives, but she was once considered quite progressive herself, in part because of the Dumbledore Declaration. But don't expect to hear anything about Dumbledore and Grindelwald's relationship in the version of the film that's being released in China, because Warner Brothers has admitted that it removes some dialogue from the film in which their relationship is discussed, explicitly in order to appease the authoritarian and anti-LGBT government of China. Now, Warner Brothers has not explicitly taken a position on the Don't Say Gay bill, but it has professed a stated commitment to telling LGBTQ stories and to nurture queer talent. But not in China, I guess. So this is what annoys so many people on the right, and I think it's a valid thing to be annoyed about. All the, the, the boycotts and the getting mad at Republican governors and legislatures for promoting bills and the you know, this religious freedom bills from a mm-hmm. few years ago, this bill. And again, most of these bills being things I, I acknowledge issues with, but then a total blindness to the actual, like much more serious discrimination against uh, these uh, categories of minorities who should be protected in other countries, especially by China. Yeah, look, there's an awful lot of performativity that happens in these spaces. And that's not to say that there aren't people with sincerely held beliefs, but to the extent that you get a lot of the corporate buy-in that you get, whether it's, you know, people objecting, you know, Disney objecting to the Don't Say Gay bill or J.P. Morgan Chase putting a Black Lives Matter sign in the window, it does very much feel like they're doing it because not doing it would it cut their, eat into their profits more than the, the alternative. And you see that hypocrisy play out when you look at what happens when the instance of bigotry is just out of the eyesight of the general public or just just beyond the edge of the balance sheet, you know, just beyond the edge of American attention. They're willing to do something but not go all the way. And I think that really creates vulnerabilities for liberals broadly and the left when they open themselves up to the idea that they're acting in bad faith. Now, of course, there's a lot of performativity in the creation of all of these bills anyway. Nobody, you know, the idea of making a whole political project out of CRT or don't say gay bills, when if you ask somebody specifically, you know, if there's an instance of, you know, racism or prejudice that comes up in school, should the teacher ignore it? Should the teacher allow kind of identity-based bullying? Should the people, the teacher allow gender-based bullying? If a student asks a question about something, that should that be ignored? Should this be put in a dunce cap in the corner and then not be addressed? Most people would give you a very reasonable and obvious answer. But all of the stuff is, full, uh, is, is focused on, in my humble opinion, to keep us from talking about anything that might be going on of substance 
in Florida or anywhere else in the country. And it's really dispiriting because I honestly think that most people are not as far away from each other on these issues as the media circus, circus pretends they are. Well, I agree with that. Most people, right, even people who are ideologically different and distinct, who are Republicans or Democrats, there is a shared frustration, honestly, in what's going on in schools. Part of it, just because of the pandemic, was a frustrating um, uh, experience for so yeah. many parents, for working parents, etc. School stayed closed longer than anything else. Even today, the, the restrictions on students relating to COVID are stricter than any restriction on anyone anywhere else in the country. Um, and that was not, they, they did not meet parents' needs. And also parents saw, I think, some of them for the first time, uh, what was being taught in some of these schools, and they have some issues with it. And I, I mean, they're, it's, they're the parents. I do think parents have a right to, to, to know what's going on in their schools, and if they object to it, to have, they should have some other choice for what's being taught. Yeah, sure. Look, the only thing I'll say to that is when I was growing up, there were lots of things that I objected to and my mom objected to in the context of my education. Even though I went to a generally probably progressive school in the grand scheme of things. And the instinct wasn't to say, let me try to get some dominion over the the school system or the faculty or the, or the curriculum. It was that I had a relationship with my parents who taught me what they believed was the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I learned at an early age to personally mediate between what I was t told and taught about in school and what I learned from my parents. And it, I, I, I am sympathetic on some level because I also would prefer, would have preferred not to have been subjected to some of the nonsense that I was subjected to. But at the end of the day, you're never going to have a system where every single parent feels completely satisfied with what's going on in the school. So I do think it's important to, I'm sorry, develop some re resilience and have good relationships with your kids and to be able to trust them that, that they can make the kind of decisions between the, the lessons that are getting at home and the lessons they're getting at school and the lessons they're going to get out in the rest of the real world because you cannot insulate people forever. And to the extent that the right talks an awful lot about snowflakes and safe spaces and all of this, it feels to me like they are trying very hard to create safe spaces, in quotation marks, in the classroom beyond kind of a normal, reasonable extent. Mm -hmm. And that this is, I just want to emphasize, this is a concern that I think a lot of parents share and should be kind of trying to work through in a, in a, a communal, sympathetic way, as opposed to using legislation to try to press their agenda on other people's families and other people's kids. I, I hear you. I think they would say that, but but the other the views they disagree with are the ones currently being pressed. Yeah, on everyone kids, thinks they're they a victim. Get, Every, you know, everyone thinks that the, the rest of the world is a hegemony and they're the minority. Well, look, view. the way that the school officials in a lot, in Virginia, especially in a couple places, uh, reacted to this criticism did not uh, was not successful at making people. Yeah, right. for they, sure. It was very like, nope, we're in charge of your kids. You don't get to tell us what to yeah. do. You don't like it tough. For sure. We don't care. And uh, you know what? They're an, if they're an elected. They're they're they are. Uh, supposed to be responsive to the public and they were so unresponsive to the public and so many of these school boards not right i agree on the actual teachers right there's a range of uh, it varies in terms of quality it varies in terms of what's being taught uh the hostility of school boards in many deeply progressive locations to like common sense or or the, what the parents want mm -hmm. or just like anything reasonable uh, well, you saw what happened in San Francisco, obviously. They actually tossed them because they were so insane. Mm. Uh, was, uh, it, it's, it worries a lot of parents, and it even worried me. Mm. So, Do you see yourself as a homeschooler someday? 
Robbie? If I, uh, I, I, no, probably not. I might homeschool my kids. I might uh, send, I, I myself am a product of Catholic school. I had a perfectly good Catholic school upbringing. The solution I want for families is school choice. They should be able to take whatever, which you don't like. Oh I know. boy, that's a whole we'll other radar, that Robbie. Another day, but they should be able to take the education dollars what, for whatever educational environment they see fit. All right, we should moot that at some point in the near future. Absolutely. On a day when I'm not dist uh, distracted by a Harry Potter news headline, <laughs> which I have to discuss. Can't help it. Our rising panel joins us next for more. Well, it turns out Putin's price hike isn't working out for rebranding inflation. New polling from CNBC shows Biden's approval rating taking a nosedive over economic concerns and inflation. Biden's approval rating slid to a new low of just 38 percent, according to the survey, which found only one in five described their financial situation as getting ahead, the weakest in eight years. And according to a new Quinnipiac poll, Biden's approval rating with Hispanics dipped to just 26 percent, the lowest of any demographic besides young people. Only 21 percent of people aged 18 to 34 approve of Biden's job handling. Our rising panel is here to discuss the numbers. Council member at large of Montgomery County, Maryland, Will Jawando and Republican strategist Malik Abdul join us now to discuss. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good to see you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, Will, I mean, these numbers are just terrible. They keep getting worse every time you think, well, how much lower can Biden sink? He sinks lower. Um, what, what possibly can uh, the party even do at this point to reverse these numbers and, you know, to prepare themselves for the what looks to me like the inevitability in, in November, which is going to be catastrophe? Yeah, well, as you were speaking, I was saying it's reminding me of a luau. You know, how low can you go here? Mm -hmm. it's, uh, <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not pretty. Um, and I think the the higher a gallon of milk goes up, the higher the gas prices go up. Uh, this is real, and people feel it uh, every day. And you know, look, there's always a context is important. There's always the president in power always loses in the midterms. There's always difficulty, but. You know, we're in uncertain times uh, coming out of a, a pandemic. Obviously, the health pandemic doesn't rate high uh, on people's minds, but we're still dealing with the inequity and economic fallout. And then we've got the war on top of it. Um, so it's it's a problem. Uh, you know, in this same poll, though, you did see that, you know, 66 percent of folks blame corporations for taking advantage. I think another 55 percent blame uh, Vladimir Putin and 49 percent blame Joe Biden on why the prices have gone up, but doesn't help him with his overall rating. But it shows that there's a lot of blame and anger to go around. And when prices are this high, people look to who's in charge um, and whether rightly or fairly or not and say, what are you going to do about it? Well, look, it's interesting to contrast this with Trump's approval ratings. Obviously, the last year of his presidency was also marred by the pandemic. And yet, in some ways, didn't quite dip to these depths at this at this juncture. Do you think this is all circumstantial or does it have something to do with specifically how Joe Biden is leading in this moment? I think it has a lot to, um, actually more so to do with the expectations that people had with Joe Biden coming into office, because Joe Biden really did promise a lot of things about what would be different now under his presidency, but it failed to actually um, capture 
the realities of the ground of what people are feeling. So yes, coming out of the pandemic, there was a lot of economic anxiety. There was a lot of anxiety all around the country, but also now we're dealing with inflation. And I think that the numbers are really showing they've been trending in the Republican direction for some time now. Even most recently, I think that was the Wall Street Journal poll that showed that the approvability factor for Republican candidates among blacks and Hispanics has really, um, I think it's probably about a six or so percent, but it's really substantial. I think that there were a, non, a number of things that people expected Biden to do in, in office, and many of those expectations were unrealistic, but Biden is now having to deal with overpromising a lot of things and the realities of governing. So I think this is something that we're gonna, you know, we will continue to see, and I don't think it's necessary, because we've seen so many polls moving in the same direction, we're beyond circumstance now, this seems like this is laying the blueprint for what we're going to see in um, midterm, the midterms. Well, well Malik uh, says that it's an expectation gap and that some of the, the, the promises were unrealistic. Others are quite realistic. There are things that progressives have been highlighting exactly because they can be executed by uh, Biden via executive order. And there are also issues that disproportionately affect the base. Uh, blacks and Latinos who, as we see from the polls, are shifting away from support of Joe Biden. What do you make in particular of Joe Biden's reluctance to go ahead and fulfill his promise, not just to cancel at least $10,000 of student debt, but to also cancel all HBCU debt for people who earn less than $125,000 a year, which was a campaign promise that it seems most people have forgotten at this point. Yeah, well, there were a lot of expectations and I think a lot of people were happy with the shift back to some sort of normalcy. You know, if you take the nomination and confirmation of Judge uh, Katanji Jackson Brown, Brown Jackson, Jackson Brown, excuse me, um, that normally would be a huge bump for a president. Uh, you didn't, you're not seeing that, right? These are un unusual times. Um, I think the extension of the uh, delay on student loan payments was a good thing. I mean, I, I, am, I agree. I think we should be moving towards cancellation, at least for uh, a, a, a large percentage of debt uh, for folks that are really, really struggling. That, that would help at an economic time. The child tax credit, we weren't able to get that. And, and Senator Joe Manchin was a big part of that, uh, not, not being willing to extend that. You're seeing that that people have start, stopped receiving that. And so I think there are there is some angst about well what's going to happen. And then if you look at one of the major accomplishments, the infrastructure bill, um, you're really not going to see that Americans aren't going to see the impact of that for a, a couple of years. And so that's the issue too, is we're just now getting the money as local elected officials, states, and local governments, and deciding how to get those projects going. So it's it's really. I think a combination of the context of a, an incumbent president always loses seats and then this massive inflation, this war and coming out of COVID, which was always going to have a long tail because of how inequitable uh, it, it, it wreaked havoc on our economy and on certain communities like the ones we're talking about. Hmm. Well, last week, Deutsche Bank became the first major bank to forecast a recession. And now we are hearing a similar cry from Bank of America, who warns that high inflation is out of control and predicts a recession as the Fed raised interest rates to get prices under control. The risk there is that the Fed will do too much and sink the economy in the process. Uh, what are you making of this right now, Malik? And so this is something that I think we've been watching probably since early, maybe around this time last year, what the economists were saying, what Wall Street is saying. Um, obviously, 
the hope is, is that we don't enter into a recession. But I think it's a very difficult thing and people need to be realistic and that this is not the, the president does not control um, you know, whether or not inflation any more than oil companies control the price of gas at the pump. So this is some of the things are kind of built in. But I just wanted to address one of the things that you actually said about the things that uh, minorities, particularly African-Americans, are concerned about. I'm not sure exactly. So those big things, voter, the, um, the voter reform bill, the chat, even things like uh, the um, college tuition, keep in mind these things are constituencies. So not every black person went to college. Not every black person is um, has college tuition high on their list. The same thing with the voter voting rights legislation, um, police reform. We know that the Republicans tried to get that through when Trump was in office and it didn't happen under Trump. And now that Biden is under, in office, it didn't happen then. But if you look at the polling numbers, while those things may actually rank well as far as polling, they're not the top concerns when you have our, our kitchen table issues, you know, the price of chicken, the price of vegetables even are exponentially higher than what they were around this time last year, even and even when at the height of the pandemic, when Trump was in office. So it's a lot of juggling going on. And that's why I mentioned earlier talking about the unrealistic expectations that somehow the college tuition, that thing was going to be a real thing, that he was going to eliminate the debt for HBCUs. But I guess if you if you are black and probably went to a PWI, a predominantly white institution, you may not get that same um, elimination of debt. So I just thought it was a very unrealistic goal overall, but we're really dealing with the realities of governance right now, not just campaign promises, but governing. Yeah, it, I'm sorry, it, it, is, it is fair to say that most people don't have student debt. 44 million people do, however, and it's disproportionately concentrated among uh, black women are the largest uh, percentage-wise debt holders. The reason we constantly talk about student debt, or I should say I constantly talk about <laughs> student debt, I, I will fully admit, is not because I believe, to your point, Malik, that it's America's highest priority. It absolutely is not. And if there was some policy that Joe Biden could ex enact by executive order without having to go through Congress, I would absolutely be emphasizing that as well. I think medical debt cancellation, for instance, should be a huge priority. But I will note that if we're talking about child tax credits, the constant refrain isn't that, well, most, a lot of Americans don't have kids. You know, the, if, we're, if we're talking about uh, housing reform or mortgage point, subs though. subsidy. Well, no, it is a good, that's a good point against the child tax credit, yeah, in my view. But. It, it seems like it's okay to do a lot of di different things for a lot of different constituencies with an understanding that not everybody belongs to every constituency, but there has been a particular resistance to doing the one thing, one of the few things that Joe Biden can actually do by executive authority, and which can be a substitute for millions of people who are having to afford higher priced groceries, et cetera, to not have to pay another $1,000 in student loan debt is meaningful for them. I suspect this is why actually Andrew Yang and his policies have resonated with so many people who watch this show, for instance, uh, the, the kind of, you know, payments to everyone independent of circumstance, independent, mm. you know, the, the guaranteed basic income kind of proposal mm -hmm. because it yeah. gets around um, uh, some of this. But well, we're, we got to uh, go in a minute. But Will, I, I just wanted to get your uh, reaction to, I wanted to specifically address those Hispanic numbers are, are, are so bad. What do you think is going on, uh, you know, with that specifically? Are, are Hispanics Republicans now? What's going on? <laughs> no, I think, well, look, the Latino community has always been very diverse. I think there's always the unfortunate uh, you know, kind of urge to lump people together. Uh, and like the older African-American community, there are 
you know, some strings of conservatism, moderate, moderate folks in, in those communities, uh, depending on the issues. So, um, you know, I don't, I think, again, uh, you'd have to dig deeper into those cross tabs, but I, I think those economic issues are paramount. Uh, if you look uh, at Latino and African-American communities, I think that alone gives some disproportionality into why you're seeing a change in the numbers. Uh, but no, I don't think I don't think they're Republicans. There has been a trend in that way on certain issues, some social issues that's being drip, drummed up again in certain states by certain governors, by the Republican Party, uh, crime and safety issues and, and the like. So I think there are there's some reasons on the Republican side, too, of why they're trying to make a play for that community. But I think things will, you know, will equalize here on the general ballot. You know, it's still congressional ballot. It's still tied 43, 43. I still think Republicans will do well. We've got to work hard. And to your point, Bria, maybe maybe we can push the president to just hold off on that cancellation, you know, a month, month or so before the election. Maybe that'll help. Mm-hmm. Well, Will, Malik, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And we'll have more rising after this. California Senator Dianne Feinstein's mental decline was on full display during an interaction with a Democrat in Congress, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, as they prepared for a policy discussion in which the lawmaker said they had to reintroduce themselves to Feinstein multiple times during the interaction that lasted several hours. They said it appears that her memory is rapidly deteriorating and it appears she can no longer fulfill her duties that require her to represent nearly 40 million people in California. So she's 88 years old. She's up for re-election in 2024, I believe. Yeah. And she's filed paperwork. To, now it's a formality. She might not run. I mean, there's no way she can, but there's nothing stopping her. The depressing part is that these kinds of stories were coming up before her last run. They were. And nobody seemed to care. And to the extent that people raise this as an issue, a lot of them were dismissed as... Ageist. I heard ageist, that. sexist. How dare you not let a woman live out her time? It was very, like, RBG adjacent. Yeah. I remember, I seem to remember a story where a bunch of young, I'm talking like elementary school age climate activists, came to her office and asked her very gently because, you know, they're elementary school students, they weren't exactly aggressive, (laughs) whether or not she was going to do anything for the environment and Green New Deal and all of this stuff. Again, California, Green New Deal, children, this should be a very bucolic kind of a situation. And she called them jack-booted tots. (laughs) <laughs> Jack booted tots and basically asked them to get out of their office. This is who this person has, you know, become. And certainly nobody is relishing somebody's mental decline. But you got to really ask yourself what is going on with the system that is holding on to her staying in office so tightly. Yeah, and after uh, Leahy retires, she'll be third in line for. She'll be technically the ranking, the eight oldest in the Senate. That's ridiculous. Now, I also want to point out that when these kinds of questions are being raised in the context of the Democratic primary, I remember there were two Democrats, presidential candidates, who are broadly liked and supported by the party, uh, who raised these issues. It was uh, Cory Booker and um, Julian Castro. And I remember them doing a presser after one of the debates during which Biden had been particularly seemingly not really with it. And they both very gently, kindly raised the issue in the spin room. And you never heard from it again about it again. No one ever brought it up on TV after that. And it seemed like those two were pushed off the debate stage very quickly after that. So there really does seem to be a system in place that protects 
these very, very aging senators. The Democrats are much older than the Republicans. It's hard to think of who the new talent is. It's hard to come up with like five senators under 60 yeah. on the Democratic yeah. side. And this is why. It, it's, it is a bigger problem on the Democratic side. There are a lot of old Republicans, too. Sure. Chuck Grassley is going to run for re-election. He's 88. Um, the average age of the Senate has just gone up and up and up over the years. We don't have, I, don't, we have, I guess we have weaker parties. So my understanding is that in other countries, they don't have this problem as dramatically because like, the party just pushes you out eventually mm. so that the, the younger people can take over. That doesn't happen here because there isn't a strong enough central party to say these people got to go, I guess. Yeah, and there's no accountability. There's no political accountability. You can be someone like Jim Clyburn, who's been in office for what? It's got to be about 30 years at this point, who has never really faced a a real primary challenger, never participates in debates. He's being challenged right now, I think, by two Democrats in the primary. But the odds, you know, frankly, are very slim that they're going to break through. And he is a representative from one of the poorest districts in the country. Have you ever even heard anyone mention Jim Clyburn's district, what it's like, who lives there in South Carolina? No, we hear him as a kingmaker. We hear about his political bona fides. We hear about his power in the party. And no one asks the barest minimum of questions about whether or not he's actually delivering for his constituents with all the power that he has and, frankly, all of the money that he gets from these interests whose interests are antithetical to those of the people he represents, namely the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, He is the largest recipient of uh, money from the pharmaceutical industry in Congress. Yeah. You know, the, 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 if we were asking those kinds of questions, if people understood politicians in a context outside of their political power, then I think there would be a much stronger push either to get them out or to at least make them more attendant to their communities. Yeah. I mean, it becomes a national security concern at some point to have so many of your top government officials be be so old and possibly, you know, past the state of mental preparedness yeah. she's clearly exhibiting i you know yeah. we have questions about biden obviously i i think he doesn't uh his ability to communicate well has totally deteriorated whether that you know reflects his actual mental state i i'm not quite sure yeah he certainly does not communicate as easily as he did when he was Oh, yeah. Look at look at old videos. The the difference is obvious. And look, I'm not I don't want to be ageist here. There are plenty of older senators for whom this isn't the cognitive uh, difference at that age is is very stark. Bernie clearly still Bernie still got it. Trump is just as love him or dislike him. He's clearly like he has not changed. He's still him. People like uh, Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren. These are people, you know, in their 70s don't seem to have any cognitive issues. So that's not, it's not just an age issue. It's not a right. chronology issue. But this, Diane Feinstein... It's clearly, yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I don't know what the... But they can't, they can't force her to do anything. And, and you'll see the thing, because this would happen with, um, with RBG. Someone would say, <laughs> reasonably from your perspective, would say, She's got to, she should go now so she can be replaced with someone of a similar ideology. And then you would see a backlash. Be like, no, yes. that's ageist. She doesn't owe you a seat. Yes. It was like, okay, you're not, you're not playing the game here, friend. <laughs> no, and that is why the federal courts look like they do. If, if you, there's people who have charted out and studied 
when Republican um, federal judges step down strategically versus when Democrats do. Democrats, it's never strategic. Yeah. It's never strategic. And that has had a cumulative effect over the years, and, and we're screwed over it. And there were a lot of cheerleaders who were still out there on, on TV today or on Twitter today talking about who, who were the very people who said, oh, you were so sexist and horrible for trying to push RBG out, who will now turn to a progressive like myself and accuse us of having been responsible for the uh, deterioration of abortion rights across the country. I'm like, I'm not the one who was encouraging the octogenarian who regrettably was suffering from pancreatic cancer in the Obama administration to continue her reign because she wanted hubristically to have a woman president and Hillary Clinton replace her. That wasn't me. I'm guilty of a lot of things. But that one's not on me. Well, Breyer retired strategically. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, th I think because of the, the nice little rhyming couplet, the retired Breyer really did the, did the work. <laughs> that was that. That was it. <laughs> that's, well, that's what did I'll, it. I'll, I'll, I'll trust your judgment on that. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Ben Shapiro got into a scuffle with a student on Monday at an event called Men Cannot Be Women, held in a North Carolina college hosted by Young America's Foundation. Popular conservative podcaster and outspoken critic of gender identity was put on the spot during the question and answer portion when a student who identified himself as a mathematician and physicist said this. I'm a mathematician and a physicist here, a double major, and I also just won the most prestigious award in the country to pursue research at any institution I want, the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. So I think I'm pretty you know, qualified to say that most of what you're saying is based on like old data. Um, but my question to you, and I so I want you all to like, realize last that. Month, but sure. Um, like, for example, gender identity disorder, that's the DSM-4, bro. We use the DSM-5 now for psychologists to be able to talk about... I literally about... cited the DSM-5 in the speech, and it's called gender dysphoria, which is I the term that I use throughout the speech, not gender identity disorder. You sound like disorder, a bozo, bro. And you get no DSM pussy, and you can't even make your wife wet, bro, so what's good? So, number one, let me just say, the nice thing about... Having the real question, several small the children real question that don't feel is, the necessity if, to have my masculinity. We're using a Western like colonial you. idea of gender, then why should it apply? If we're using cause because the gender binary is a Western colonial is a Western colonialist framework of gender. You're you right. Know? Men and women don't exist in any other culture. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I'm no You're think right. about Native American. Nailed it. Third gender people I'm not saying that. Third gender people exist in Native American societies, Western African societies, like southern Native American societies like Mexico. So in other places that are not white dominated and they like are the United incorrect. States or Europe. And so so you're saying, saying white so non white people I'm a mathematician and a physicist. You cannot so tell what me the, so I have a question. And also you're not a biologist. So I have a question. I'm 20 As a mathematician a, and a physicist, what in the hell do you know about human biology? And you got your law degree from Harvard. What do you know about biology? You got your law degree from Harvard. And frankly, and frankly, I would ask another question. If your logic is so flawed as a mathematician and a physicist, I would suggest that whichever institution gave you an award, re revoke it immediately. Shapiro promptly responded saying, quote, the nice thing about having several small children is I don't feel the necessity of having my masculinity challenged by someone like you. I think that was in the clip we played. The University of North Carolina at Greensboro hosted the event, defended its policy on not censoring discourse. Thank goodness. Media relations Eden Boss told The Hill in an email, quote, as a public university, we cannot regulate free expression on the basis of content, whether we agree or disagree. Um, I thought the student humiliated himself and like, don't. So it actually did about 18 things that annoy me. One is to, like, drop credentials. Like, nobody cares. Just say what you think. 
Um, it wasn't well, if really relevant credentials. They would have been relevant, it, but it was weird for him to call out Ben Shapiro for not being a biologist when he identified as lots of credible, wonderful things, but not a biologist there either. Was, there was no question in his statement. You should ask your question in the form of a question uh, <laughs> when you're responding to speakers, and then don't. If, if you're going to disagree with him, disagree with him, but you immediately discredit yourself if you like make that stupid personal attack or whatever. Yeah, so here's here's the problem. People on the internet really felt like this was an own on both sides. and I thought it was an own only in one direction. I, look, but. I delight in a funny insult. <laughs> you know, like I understand. I found this cringe. This made me cringe. I, I understand why people just liked the idea of getting an insult, insult off at Ben Shapiro, point blank period. But I agree that it's really frustrating because so often I find myself as a leftist who is on the side, uh, being on the side of various people who I agree substantively with, who are not making the case very well and who are making the case in a way that undermines it fundamentally. So for example, one of the things that I had an issue with in addition to I think your good points was that he talks about the fact correctly that other societies in all kinds of uh, all parts of the world have had different a different way of understanding gender. And that is relevant because people like Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro himself, often rely on this idea of tradition, specifically Western tradition, to make the point that because it's always been this way, this is how it always has to be, or all of these years of practice validate why we should continue on in the same way. Now, to point to the fact that there are many, many years of tradition that militate in the opposite direction is a relevant rebuttal to that point. But by making it about non-white people think this, therefore the white view, like I don't really understand what that had to do with it. And it left uh, Ben Shapiro with this opening to, to start to poke holes at it. And again, started to undermine this guy's credibility. If your point is that, hey, Ben Shapiro, I agree that I disagree with you on uh, with the idea that there are only two genders and there's these specific heteronormative roles. Here's other ways that very successful so societies have modeled different kinds of behavior, and I don't know what difference it is to you. Then that's that's a solid right. point. I don't know what the rest of it is doing. Yeah, and look, I'm not uh, on, on social issues, on gender issues. I'm not as far to the right, uh, not nearly as far to the right as Ben Shapiro is. But I, I think he was basically correct in saying that. I mean, if you're gonna make the so the, the, the gender binary, male and female, is basically replicated, it, not just in Western culture, but in other places. Now, there are exceptions in, in Western culture and in other cultures. It's a, it's, it, this is a pretty, seems to me to be a pretty dominating norm cross cultures. There are many exceptions to it, and some large exceptions, like the, the, with Native Americans that, that got brought up, right? Some, some cultures have women hunting and men staying at home in prehistoric times. There have been female monarchs there have been like there's all sorts of exceptions but a general the general male female dynamic is not just a western culture invention and does it, it no it's not prevalent think, in, that's why in, he undermined his right. point by trying to pretend like this is how white people do it and this is how non-white people do it different people in different places have done it a lot of different ways right. i think the better point to make is that what we think as exceptional or deviations from the norm is a, was a, has been a lot more prevalent both now and over the course of history than we understand it to be because of the selective reading of said history now that's not the point that was made and instead you, you're right we did open with this ad hominem which you may or may not think is amusing and then <laughs> and then basically left this whole door open by literally saying 
making a claim to your own authority based on credentials that had nothing to do with anything. And then when Ben Shapiro points out that your credentials, while they might be impressive, have nothing to do with the subject of the conversation, his reply was, and you got a law degree from Harvard, which I guess is supposed to be a diss, but they're equally unqualified. And it's just like you're randomly singing praises of his resume for no reason. Yeah. It was cringe. It was cringy. It was cringe, and it's disappointing because the people who were at that event seem to be very much with Ben Shapiro, and nothing that was said in the context of this exchange is going to push people in either direction. Also, it's not really clear to me from the substance of this what arguments are being made. I would like to ask Ben Shapiro, okay, what difference does it make to you? Why is it that you have this kind of disproportionate focus on how other people are living their private lives in a world where there's such an emphasis on individuality and freedom of choice? I fully respect your ability to impregnate your wife many times and have the many children that you're very proud of. But why is there this constant focus and attention on the way other people are living their lives and to have a substantive exchange about some of the tensions within his own ideology? Because by making it, like even you just said, you just said deviations from the norm. So don't we have to then concede there is a norm? I think it's okay for there to be deviations now, from the norm. The Maybe Ben Shapiro yeah. disagrees. But there is a norm, and it's okay to not conform to it. I feel that way, but that doesn't mean there isn't a norm that no. most people fall into and that has mostly existed, and it's okay to be different. Yeah, I don't think that anybody would dispute that. I think there is an extent to which, however... I think, actually, I think Ben Shapiro and that student would have disputed it in opposite directions. That there's a there norm? is no norm. Norm is an invention of Western colonializing society okay. that they're forcing All on right. everyone on one hand, and yes, there's a norm and everyone should conform to it okay. on the other, All right. which I think neither position is correct. But. Well, we're, we're both uh, trying to read in a lot to uh, arguments that were made not very well in a very short clip, but I am once again frustrated by the reductive nature of the internet, but amused a little bit, I confess, by a sweet ad hominem. <laughs> Let us know if you agree in the comments. We'll have more rising after this. Inquiring minds want to know, Kim, what's on your <laughs> radar today? Well, as Robbie has covered extensively here on Rising, mask mandates are being reinstated in cities like Philadelphia and in universities such as Georgetown, extended in situations such as traveling on a plane, and in some cases just haven't been lifted, like for toddlers in New York City daycare centers. The reinstatement of masks made me wonder where this is coming from. What's the justification for this? So today I want to go over the data with you. Plus, I'll show you some surprising data from the CDC themselves. So let's start with Philly. If Philadelphia is reinstating masks, they must be seeing a significant surge in cases, right? Well, let's take a look. I think this graph speaks for itself. What are they doing? The cases are low. Look at this, extremely low. They're currently looking at a seven-day average of 176 cases per day, and that's in a city of one and a half million. Now compare this to the little baby wave they had in September, which had them seeing about 450 cases per day, and that was during uh, the, and that was during their baby wave. Now during their big wave in January, they were seeing about five to six thousand cases per day on average. Again, today they're seeing 165 cases per day on average, and they're reinstating the masks. Now let's look at their deaths. We know deaths lag by a few weeks, but this here is showing that there's no reason to be alarmed. The deaths are low, very low. They're averaging two per day, but we don't know if these people died of COVID or with it. So a lot of places will list a person as a COVID death if they just test positive, despite them dying of other obvious ailments like cancer or injuries. 
Okay, now let's look at Washington, D.C., where Georgetown is. If they're reinstating masks, there must be a giant wave going around, right? Also, we've heard about that fancy gridiron super spreader event that infected Merrick Garland, Adam Schiff, and New York and New York City Mayor Eric Adams, as well as about 70 others. Plus, Nancy Pelosi, who wasn't even at that dinner, also tested positive. So D.C. must be just like raging with this virus. Let's take a look. Here's D.C. Okay, so we can see that there's a slight uptick. It's a little more than Philly, but it's still very, very slight. And here are the deaths for Washington, D.C. They're at zero. They're at zero. So clearly, like Philadelphia, Georgetown University is re-implementing mask mandates while cases are very low. And maybe you're thinking that's exactly when to do it before the cases get out of control. But by this logic, we can never take off the mask until we reach zero COVID. If the idea is to wear a mask while cases are low, and if COVID is never going away, then when does this end? So let's look at the U.S.'s overall cases. Since federal airplane mask mandates are staying in effect, they've extended them from April 18th when they were supposed to end, and now they're ending not until uh, May. Again, cases are extremely low. They're going up, but they're very, very low. So is the plan to wear masks every time the ticker moves upward? COVID doesn't look to ever be going away. So there needs to be another plan besides masking up and worst of all, keeping toddlers masked. So as long as COVID exists and cases go up. Now I'm going to show you this graph. Um, this is from the CDC's own data. And this is from Justin Hart from rationalground.com. And the graph is based on data from the CDC. It's showing us counties with a population of over 100,000 and their seven day average of cases per 100,000 people. So the blue line represents counties that had mask mandates and the orange line are the counties that didn't. Now, the counter to this is people say not everyone is compliant. Mandates can be in place, but it doesn't mean people follow them. Okay, fair enough. Now, if you remember, people often pointed to Asia as the exemplary model of masking. People in countries such as Japan, South Korea and Taiwan have a culture of mask wearing. So compliance to the mandates haven't been an issue. So let's take a look at how they're doing. Now, most of these countries didn't see a big wave when the West and, the, and South America did. They instead are seeing their surge now, which is why Shanghai, for example, is under intense lockdown. So let's take a look at Japan. Now, you could see that huge spike and then a little dip, and they're now going back up again. Their seven-day average is currently at 50,000 cases per day. At the height of their big wave, they were seeing 100,000 cases per day. They all wear masks all the time. Here's South Korea. They're currently at 150,000 cases per day. And at the recent peak, peak, they were seeing a whopping 400,000 cases per day on average. And again, they wear masks all the time with solid compliance. So we have everything we need for you to choose to, say, to stay as safe as possible from a negative COVID outcome. You can decide to socially distance, get the vaccine multiple times, take an early treatment drug. And yes, if you want, you can even mask up. But as the world is finding out, preventing transmission seems to be very difficult. And every mandate we've tried besides extreme social distancing and total border lockdowns before a virus gets into the country has been unsuccessful at accomplishing it. So lots of questions here, you know, just wanting to go over the data. Uh, I know, Robbie, you're very, very much, you know, you've made yourself clear many times on this show about how you feel about masking. But, you know, here we are reinstating some masking in some areas, not allowing the masking to drop in others. And I think there is just a general question that we need to ask, which is what is the goal? What are we trying to do? Yeah, there are a couple.
couple of, I think, devil's advocate questions that I might want to ask. One, how much research there is about the efficacy of, uh, say, the KN95 or the better quality masks versus some of these paper masks and cloth masks that people have been wearing. Um, and also about the efficacy of the one-way masking. If one-way masking and a high-quality mask is getting the job done, then obviously the arguments for having mandates goes way, way, way down. But I do think, Kim, you make a compelling point that there are these other places that seem to have been implementing and reinforcing mask mandates pretty consistently that don't have uh, big differences in outcomes. Yeah. yeah. The CDC has acknowledged, I believe, the benefits of one-way masking, or they've acknowledged that that's a solution. You know, people who want that extra level of protection, absolutely, they, they should be able to make that choice 100%. But for everyone else who has, you know, particularly for people in a situation, many people have, have already had it or maybe even already had it multiple times. They're, they might be vaccinated and boosted. They might just not have to they, they, they might not be afraid of COVID more than they would be afraid of catching a cold or, d d you know, the kind of seasonal illness that most people come uh, come down with. It it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to impose on all of society ma uh, mass restrictions or requirements when that basically we've gotten COVID to that stage. You know, you can make a different argument for the earlier stages of the pandemic. But look, we're in a stage where we're going to see upticks in cases periodically, probably forever. We're not going to get to, to, to COVID zero. And, and, you know, countries that are still charting that course look pretty authoritarian and miserable. So learning to live with the virus, I think, means devolving the choice to individuals. And I, I really thought we'd, we'd gotten there. But, you know, places like Philadelphia, many college campuses, um, I, I think D.C., I don't know if they're going to bring back the mask mandate or not. It wouldn't surprise me if they wait if they wait until, what is it, three weeks from now, the white, three weekends from now, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and then as soon as that's over, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, now masks are back. Like, the, you know, yeah. the rich, wealthy, uh, the political people, they, as long as they got to have their party with maximum fun, which is another, you know, part of this that we talk about frequently, about how the compliance mostly falls on the least powerful. Well, Kim, I'm curious. The, the other thing I was thinking of is this conversation about how some of the data is affected by the reality that testing uh, is not as frequent as it has been in the past. It's a possibility that if we're seeing such high profile pic figures, even like Nancy Pelosi and all of these politicians come down with COVID, there does seem to be a little bit of a gap cognitively for me as I'm trying to understand all of this, all of that happening and actually experiencing in my personal life. A lot of people, it seems, are, are getting COVID again in a, in a yeah. spike and the lack of a change on the graph could that be in part because we're not testing people are going to the hospital with uh, flu-like symptoms and i'm reporting that they're not even given COVID tests in that context um, we have a lot of these home tests that joe biden sent out and people are kind of testing in the privacy of their homes and not reporting through any kind of mechanism are you concerned at all that we might not have an accurate picture of what's going on with the disease especially because it's politically advantageous for biden and the democrats right now to say that they've got this under control Right. Well, the one the one thing that we can't fudge are the hospitalizations and mm. the deaths. Mm. So even if the testing is lagging or people just aren't testing as much and they're catching COVID and we're not recording that, we do know whether or not people are showing up at the hospital and they're just simply not. Mm. So, you know, and even with the Omicron wave, we saw fewer people going to the hospital than what we saw. Like for Philadelphia, for example, they saw way more hospitalizations at the very beginning of the pandemic back in early 2020 and that spring. Um, way more hospitalizations, way more deaths and hospitalizations, but particularly deaths 
than they did even during the Omicron wave when they had way more cases than they had in that first wave. Now, the first wave, they may have had many, many, many cases, as to your point, they just didn't test and they didn't know that they had all the cases. But we saw that the hospitals did, you know, they, they had a significant number of people showing up and needing to be hospitalized. That is not happening right now. So now what they're saying, of course, is, well, we're trying to prevent that. That's why we want people to go back and mask up, because we're trying to prevent the spread, which would then hopefully prevent the hospitalization. But we don't even have, you know, clear data at this point on how can t- how how um a deadly or, or severe this latest new variant is, the cousin of Omicron that's even more uh, virulent. We don't know. And so, but to go back to masking, again, you know, you can't wear it all day, every single day. And we know that the the uh, the place you're going to most likely catch COVID is at home. Somebody comes home, mm-hmm. they've got it, and then yeah, well, you're sleeping and you're circulating the air. I can't wear it any time of the day. I can't wear it for another minute longer. I will just be perfectly honest. I'm but not I, going to I will it. say, Robbie, unfortunately, that I, I wouldn't be surprised if they bring back the mask mandates in the fall when we definitely see the, the waves surging through. I, people rise up. Well, I think the one, the one other point I, I think I'll, I'll join you. <laughs> that is worth noting is that there there is a lot of um, buzz in the disability community about what the obligations are. That even if most of us, oh. because we're vaccinated, aren't going to, you know, succumb to COVID, the worst effects, as you were pointing out, Kim, in early 2020, were because a lot of people, of course, were getting very sick and dying before the vaccines were out. Uh, that there are people who are immunocompromised and have other things going on that are similarly vulnerable. But that is a, that is why I'm so interested in this question about one-way masking. If people can stay relatively safe. Mm-hmm and protect themselves if they have a different threshold for illness, then that really does eliminate one of the biggest arguments for mask mandates. But interesting as always, Kim. Oh, thank you. All right, we'll have uh, more rising after this. Well, it's official. The rumors are true. Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter. He has offered to purchase the social media company for $54.20 a share or about $43 billion, saying that the site needs to be transformed privately because it can neither thrive nor serve free speech in its current state. And this comes a little uh, a week, uh, about a little over a week after first revealing a 9.2% stake in the company and with the news that Musk declined to join the board. So now I guess we know why. In a letter to Twitter chairman Brett Taylor, Musk said, quote, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. As a result, I'm offering to buy 100 percent of Twitter for fifty four dollars and 20 cents per share in cash. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, big news. So <laughs> yeah. some people on Twitter were pointing out that it, it was worth more. It was worth $70 per share a year ago. But obviously that that's a year ago. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> how you get rich. You, you buy one and worth flow. that ever again. <laughs> so I this I think this is a pretty strong offer uh, for the moment. So they, they absolutely ha- they, they're required to consider it. Uh, they wouldn't be acting in Twitter's mm. best interest uh, if they didn't. And people mm. are kind of. So what I'm seeing on Twitter is a lot of people sharing the view that I feel that this is kind of exciting. Um, yeah. You know, Elon Musk 
at least has articulated a vision of Twitter that is probably closer to my own heart, one where the, right. the you know, moderation of political speech is a little is less aggressive uh, and there's yeah. more of a, a kind of free speech dynamic going on. Uh, then I see other people freaking out that, oh, no, he's, you know, he's going to let Trump back on or something, uh, which he very well might do and might be the correct thing to do if he if he took control of Twitter. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah, I don't obviously care about Trump coming back on the platform. Uh, and if he plans to run Twitter as he says he is in terms of the investment in free speech, I think that would be fine. I'm a little curious about why there's so much confidence that Elon Musk, given the way he's you know, historically behaved on Twitter, given how sensitive he is sometimes about interacting with people on Twitter, given his kind of generalized temperament and some of the choices that he has made in terms of how he's lived his life and moved his money, that there, that that is actually what's going to happen and that he's not going to use it to continue to make his own little fiefdom the way that he's trying to make the sky in all of his space, his own fiefdom. Why are people, is, is there any concern from either of you that he might not actually be willing to follow through on his pros promises to make Twitter more free? Well, I mean, well, I think that there's always a risk, right? That yeah. when somebody gets into that position, um, you know, for one, it's a lot harder to run a social media platform than to just say free speech for everybody. I mean, we know that you yeah. can't really have you know, carte blanche free speech, there's, you, you've got to say, well, we, we can't have anything that's going to be, you know, illegal, like calling for violence of, against somebody or doxing, maybe, maybe doxing will become something you can't do on Twitter. Um, obviously, uprisings, you know, there's things that you have to be cautious about when you're running a social media platform. But look, I mean, better than the alternative, it, I, I think it's worth a shot. Let the guy run it. Let's see what happens. It's better than what's going on right now. And that is that the platform is just run by pretty much one side. You can't say a lot of things on Twitter. Uh, they banned, I mean, the former president of the United States, I, I, to me, how can we even pretend to be a functioning democracy when we've literally banned the former president of the United States? That's just bizarre. If you don't like what he says, don't listen to him. Don't vote for him. It's pretty simple. Um, but no, I, I mean, I think it's worth a shot. And by the way, you know, I mean, this is an, an enormous amount of money, 43 billion bucks. Maybe he could even up it a bit. That guy, Elon Musk, has nearly as much money, just to put this in perspective, as Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates combined. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what's so has. concerning, Kim. I, I'm just curious because we understand that there's an alignment of interest between kind of liberal politics and the people who run a lot of these tech sites, right? We, yeah. and that's how we get stuff like Donald Trump being banned and the uh, Hunter Biden story being wiped from the site and all of those kinds of things. But it's not like Elon Musk doesn't have his own interest as someone whose wealth is kind of historically unprecedented and who has plenty of reasons right. to want to have certain kinds of information flowing or not flowing but here's, on the internet. But here's the, so here's the viewpoint of the kind of regime that runs Twitter right now. So Max Boot is a columnist for the Washington Post. He was like a neoconservative and then a never Trump and now just kind of exists in the resistance Democrat mm -hmm. side. I, he, he writes on Twitter, I am frightened by the impact on society and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe that on social media anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. And so that's what? the view of the people who uh, run it right now. Exactly. That your ability yeah, yeah. to speak and share things should be further constrained. That's the that's the governing ethos right now, So, which is one I disagree with and one I don't want for the company. So... 
I'm sure, of, of course, Elon Musk could screw it. Anyone could screw it up. But, but the difference but is that not the difference is right that now. Elon Musk is one person with unprecedented wealth and power, as opposed to a potentially diversified board of people in joint control that at least would have multiple opinions jockeying for primacy. And I'm not saying it's ideal, but my instinct is always going to be for a more democratic setup than a more autocratic setup. And I'm, I, with you, I'm hoping and praying for a benevolent ruler in Elon Musk. If it comes to that, I'm just a little bit more skeptical, I guess, than, than you guys might be on whether that's going to be the case. It's terrible right now. I mean, it is, it just sucks. So anything, <laughs> I mean, you know, for that type of attitude that Robbie just, you know, just shared with us, that is so alarming. And that's coming from somebody working for Jeff Bezos, by the way, who owns the Washington Post. So, mm -hmm. you know, what are, is, are all the writers at Washington Post worried because when Jeff Bezos bought it, you know, uh, so I understand that there is this fear and maybe this hesitancy, but the reality is, is that, you know, if you're willing to work for and read the Washington Post under Jeff Bezos, I don't understand what the difference really would be with Twitter, except that if Elon Musk is saying, I'm going to promise that this is going to be more of a free of a free speech platform. And if he doesn't uphold that, then people will just boycott the thing. I mean, people mm -hmm. will just say, hey, you turned and you're no longer. I mean, he doesn't want to one person also doesn't want to end up being hated by the masses. And he would be hated by the masses if he And, and by the him. way, Brianna, something that I think is true that nobody wants to acknowledge, the greatest gift anyone could give to Democrats would be to bring Donald Trump back onto Twitter right now. Oh, yeah. I, that would, I, I it would think be that's a true. net benefit for Democrats to have Trump tweeting every day. But you, you guys know I'm not arguing about Trump. This, this uh, point that you just uh, brought up, Kim, I, 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 I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm concerned that there is this belief. I, I, I totally agree with you about Matt's boot, but in, in the newspaper context, there are other Washington posts. There are a diversity of newspapers, not as many as there used to be. That's a problem. The idea of defecting from Twitter, people have had issues with Twitter for a long time now, but the problem is that some of these, these outlets like Twitter and Facebook, these platforms don't have um, uh, uh, duplicates in the world in the same way that some of the media class does. Well, and that is part of their other. charm. That is part of the whole magic of these is that everybody you know is in the same place. And I think that part of the concern here is exactly how difficult it will be to set up an alternative and flee Twitter if it actually does become more restricted. I mean, of the major, there's Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and some other things. And actually right now, and I like the idea that there are, that there are different companies. And I actually think if the policies were more different between them, something we might figure out what we like best, their policies aren't all that discordant because they have very similar kind of ideologies in how they're governed. If now Twitter actually has a very different ideology, I think that might be good for society. That might, you know, we might figure something out like, oh, yeah, that was a better idea that Twitter's doing. Or no, that's actually, yeah. that's not good. This, this kind of view of content moderation doesn't work. We would actually get to see that with someone who thinks very differently in charge of one of these companies. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so. look, I don't think he can make it worse. <laughs> I mean, he could just he could just delete it, and like, would they, is that would that be the end of the world? <laughs> Maybe not. For some of us, for do. some of us, it was. For journalists, Twitter is so important. I feel like my whole career wouldn't have existed without. It, it used to be this democratizing it is, platform. But it, it, it is important. It's important for me, right? It's where I see what people are talking about. It has important right. news gathering value, but it also has news warping value, right? It it right. It, it, it causes. Sure. Uh, journalists to think that some stories are more, way more important than they are. I mean, I think it's been unhealthy for the Democratic Party. This is obviously not making the Democratic Party healthier is not a top concern of mine. But 
that it has mutated and warped and affected the priorities of young staffers who staff Democratic campaigns because they pay way too much attention to Twitter, which is not to say Twitter isn't important. It's very important because the things that you know political staffers think are important, but they're so not reflective of the rest of the country. And it, I think it's caused a lot of people who work in the party to miss that. Well, I would be much more concerned, Brie, if Elon Musk were, let's say, a big conservative guy. And then he says, oh, yeah, I'm going to take it and finally, you know, t like how Trump was trying to do with his truth social or something like this, where they say, OK, I'm going to create this and it's going to be finally free for everybody, you know, because conservatives are being censored. But Elon Musk is a libertarian guy. He's not either left or right. He gets smeared by both sides and he doesn't fit into any box. So I think it's if you know, look, I, I hate the fact also that a billionaire has to come in and rescue us and, and give us back our free speech. That's not what a democracy is. But better to have the billionaire and and the wealthiest one in the world at that wanting to give us that free speech and democracy than to want to take it away mm -hmm. all right let's see if the benevolent billionaire this, this is our the world's first benevolent billionaire i hope you guys are right what about bruce wayne <laughs> <laughs> yeah. tomorrow, tomorrow on rising senior fellow at the atlantic council and author of hacking darwin jamie metzel will join us to argue why we should still seek out the unanswered questions of the origins of COVID. And the lover's Andrew Perez will be here to break down the long parade of ex-military officials turned defense consultants invited on to endorse various degrees of intervention in the war in Ukraine. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you guys never miss any content. And of course, those of you who like to listen on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So be sure to download us there and uh, listen at you. Listen your heart's desire, right? <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> Thanks so much for watching and we will see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye.